Pardon me? Oh, Rick said he talked about referring to Babaji hiding behind the sunbeam. Clearly, he wasn't casting any shadow at that point. So it's written as if they never cast a shadow. But I think it meant more that they can not do it. But I, will, I know Swamiji's been asked, and my recollection was similar to what I've answered you, but I need to write it down and ask him. Um, yes, then there's no mater- there's no materiality to their body, but the question is, all the time, <laughs> you know, it seems peculiar. Or even if it was just literal, literal, metaphorical. But no, he he made it <clears throat> seem like it was literal. That definitely, was it's definitely the way it's written. Definitely the way it's written. Well, yeah, Lahiri. I mean, talking about not casting a shadow, they would photograph, and there'd be a blank spot. So that indicates a, a great capacity to influence um, the appearance and the actuality because Lahiri never, when the photograph was being taken, he didn't disappear. He just made his body transparent, which would be what you would do if you were not casting a shadow. You would still be there, but the sunlight would pass right through you. There are many things that we don't know. And they're just... But, but what... Um, yesterday it's... Uh, Today, Tuesday, on Sunday at Sunday service, we were reading out of this book a chapter about Lahiri in honor of his birthday, and uh, he mentions that that which a thousand years ago was a complete mystery, a hundred years ago was a mystery, is now perfectly understood. The time may come when that which is considered miraculous is also understood. So the capacity for uh, him to make his body uh, um, visible, but totally uh, non-material, is. They can do a lot. Yeah. Yes? I think in the part where Babaji appears to Yogananda, uh-huh. and he kind of mentions, he, and he told me other things that would happen to me, the mysterious reference. Do you know, has he revealed any of those things? I've never heard Swami speak of it. Does anyone else? I don't think so. I mean, that by no means... That doesn't mean at all that he hasn't or didn't, but I haven't heard him. I don't think he said it in my hearing. Yeah. I had the feeling that it was more personal than you You definitely had that feeling, but he may have said things to Swamiji that Swamiji hasn't told us yet, or, or will never tell us. Yeah. I mean, Babaji, the only part of it that Swamiji has talked about is that Master said that Master's actual guru is Babaji. This is just like to make the story more complicated because, you know, Arjuna, uh, Master was Krishna, uh, Master was Arjuna, and Babaji was Krishna, and that's the true guru-disciple relationship. And that Sri Yukteswar is a stand-in for Babaji. And that's why um, in various places he speaks of needing Babaji's blessing before he can go and do something. I prayed to Babaji for this or that. Um, and so that meeting in which he saw Babaji could easily have related to that. Swamiji has said at one point that Sri Yukteswar was perhaps Master's soulmate. In the true sense, there's a true there is Master in one or two places spoke about the about the truth of soulmates. Master never talked about it, almost never talked about it, because as he said, people would be looking for their soulmates on every street corner. But uh, Master spoke of the truth that 
that everything in the universe comes in pairs. And there is this pair. When we, when we separate out, we separate out in pairs, and then at some point there's a reunification. But the way, the way Swami described it is that you don't have to be on the same, even on the same planet. You can just reunite in uh, divine consciousness. And I think you don't have to wait for your soulmate in order to be real liberated. <laughs> it was a very important question. You know, you really like, partnered like that. And Swamiji said no. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is esoterica, you know, 607 right now. I just, this is just, wow, that's about all I can say. Wow, I don't know anything about it either. Yes, sir? In that same vein, uh-huh. um, uh, Yogananda goes out of his way at least twice to uh, remark on the startling resemblance physically of Lahiri and Babaji. He uh-huh. really goes out of his way. Yeah. And uh, did Swami ever speculate or... Uh, shed any light on what he feels he meant in that context. Well, they make their body. I mean, Lahiri incarnated and he just made his body. He could have made his body look like anything. Sure. Baba just kept his body for a really long time, but Lahiri just popped into his and then popped out of it again. Yeah. So it's more likely that, that Lahiri, when he was coming down, sort of did it as a joke. <laughs> you know? I mean, what can you say? How do you, how do you fathom these things? When I asked Swamiji once, why are all the avatars men? I said, you know, they have a choice about what body they make. So it was just, and he was just saying they have a choice and that's what they choose. They have their reasons for doing it. Yes, we would. Isn't it also true that um, perhaps it's it's prior to being fully realized that uh, one has sort of a prototypical body shape and form that one carries on from incarnation to incarnation, don't we? I've never heard that before, Rick. Or is it just then each trip to the astral world resembles the last physical incarnation? But there's definitely some sort of a resemblance that transcends at least two states, uh, states of life. But I think it's through the eyes. I don't think it's through the physical form. I've never heard what you what you just said about the body, because you're a man sometimes, a woman another time. Yeah. And I you in some context there was a definite uh, uh, resemblance there. Uh, I know I've read that. Kept his older form, is what it said. Whereas most people take a, a young body, Sri Yukteswar took an older body. And it is implied that you look more or less like you looked in your last incarnation. Um, well, Kashi did bear a resemblance to his previous incarnation, but he, he, Master remarked upon that as if it was not obvious that he would. He remarked upon the fact that he even looked a lot like he'd looked in the last life rather than, of course, he looked like he looked in the last life. So I think it would depend, Rick, because if you, for example, let's just take a very, you know, a big example. Let's say you were a great big man who was an abuser of women and you needed to be born as a very weak woman to, mod- you know, to, to balance out that bad karma or to experience what it felt like. You know, you, there would be no apparent resemblance. I had a woman friend who was a teensy, tiny, little skinny, puny thing, and she always, I mean, a real little one, but she always imagined herself as this great big man. She drew great big cars and things like that. I mean, she was not strong at all, but just somehow she had this remnant of a self-image. <laughs> and I think that was partly why she was born such a wimp, you know, she just needed to work with something one else. One of the things that Master says is that uh, he says that they could even be father and son. Right, he says they look like they could be father yeah. and son. And, you know, uh, maybe they were... Uh, Maybe they were soulmates. Maybe they were. Um, maybe they were the same soul. Well, you're way beyond me, Rick. 
I don't think I don't. I revert back to my other question. Swami never speculated, right? No, and I've never heard anything even close to that. And <clears throat> see, to my mind, I look at it very differently. Gee, if I could choose anybody in the world, I would just choose to look like the person I like the most. I mean, so if Lahiri was going to have this opportunity to choose a body, he's completely in tune with Babaji. He could just make his body like. Yeah, why not make it like that? And even to even to hint at the relationship between the two of them, or something like that. I I couldn't. I don't have a good answer. But yes, your other answer is also not unreasonable. Maybe they're bonded to each other. My answer is really. I guess I'm really interested whether Swami speculated. No, but I like it. You know, I does somebody have a pen? Does somebody have a pen? I'm going to see Swamiji in a month, and I actually want to make a list of questions. These are interesting questions. Okay, the question is. Babaji, why did Babaji look like Lahiri? Why did Lahiri look like Babaji? Okay, why did Lahiri look like Babaji? What was the other one I just said I would ask you? Yes, did Master cast a shadow? And then somebody asked me the obvious question, which I still don't know the answer to, is can you incarnate in the 20th century now and then in the 1700s the next time? Do you, have to, do you incarnate progressively in time? Yeah, I didn't have any answer for it. Okay. No, no, those were Lahiri's Kriyas. Excuse me. No, no, excuse me. It wasn't invented by Master. No, That's but I mean, he, he presented it. How much he changed it, though, Rick, is the question. I don't know how much he altered it. Master altered it a little bit from the way Sri Yukteswar taught it. Really? The second Kriya? No, first Kriya. Okay. Master altered the first Kriya right. a little bit. And how much they were altered from what Lahiri, I really don't know. If somebody, if the second Kriya specifically, that I really was living under the assumption that he, that was a, a, a unique innovation by Master. That, it just something that he learned from his, uh, from anyone else. That's news to me, Rick. Does anyone else know that's true? Yeah. Jaya said that. Take his word for it. Well, I mean, he just said. No, take his word for it. But if so, then then the four of the Lahiris presents an additional kriya initiated somewhere else. That's why I've heard that as a rumor I'll put it on the list. Some people teach. Some people, oh no, there's, there's a whole movement that says that Yogananda is not teaching the real Kriya. There's a whole lot of rumors like that. Um, but Rick, Rick, I remember, well, I don't want to say because it may not be Kriya bonds here, so. No, don't, don't be too exact. Okay, well that, that goes along with what Rick is saying. And of course, Master had a perfect right to because he may have looked at the situation and realized that, that what we need is a little different than what the Indians in the last century needed. It's quite possible. Does the Lahiri's fourth one becomes more intriguing when you think about it? Some people have said that there are 12 stages of Kriya, but it's not... Swami it, said he heard about it, he heard that the ones above the four come to a meditation and he couldn't testify to personal experience. That's exactly right, Rick. That's what I heard, too. Okay. <laughs> On to subjects of more general interest. Um, John, did you have a question? Did you speak it? Oh, it, well, actually, if you're making just a clarification, uh, uh, last time we talked about the fact that Rahiri 
for his disciples uh, asked them not to talk among themselves. And I wondered if actually on the list of Swami had any indication as to why that was. You last time said you weren't really clear why that was, but I, it wasn't clear if Swami's ever commented on that at all. I don't remember, remember commenting on that. Why. Yeah, the one thing I was thinking, and this was just, this was, I was thinking about this at Sunday service, because Sunday was devoted to Lahiri, and I was talking about how long it takes for a new idea to be to, to take hold, and how it has to happen in a in a very um, gradual process. And it may well have been that uh, you know it was the, the. I mean, if you look at it just from a, an outside point of view, this is not an esoteric reason. This is just a sensible reason. The Kriya had just come out of the Himalayas. It was a time of great transition. There was not a lot of like worldwide acceptance of, of everything that was going on. And it just wasn't time to really make it very open. It was necessary for individuals to become very rooted and for the uh, power of it to go deep before it, it could come to the surface. Um, Swamiji has definitely said that uh, people are too fanatical about that thought. There are certain people in Lahiri's line who are just too fanatical about that. And it, he didn't mean it in such a fanatical way. So, but, but Yogananda includes it in his book, so it's definitely a truth. Nothing more comes to me, so it goes on the list. Okay. Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna. I, th- I think when we, when Swami and I have talked about, and Swami and I and others have talked about. Um, the Lahiri things, Master Swamiji just said it was just because it was the times. It was a progressive thing and it was just not time yet to make it so open. It had been so secret for so long it just had to come out by gradual stages. If people were suddenly talking about this very esoteric teaching that they were doing, it would have been too much of a violation of tradition, uh, too much of a, um, just too much movement for the time. Well, not that they would have, they, no, they wouldn't necessarily have turned on him but it would have desecrated it a bit. I think that was sort of what it was about. It just had to be moved by slow stages a little bit more. That's what I would guess, yeah? How will we find out the answers to your question? Well, you'll have to come to the next class series. Dum, 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 dum. I might even email you. I'm going to, I'm going to have my computer so I can, that's a very good idea, Stephanie. Well, I'll email. If you're not on our email list, just get on it because I'll write to you when I'm gone. Okay. Yes, Shiva. All of Krishna's soldiers look like Krishna. Where does that come from? I've been saying it for so long. I think it's somewhere from the Gita, or it's from the it's from the. Uh, I'm not actually sure where it's from, but it's just an aphorism that everybody knows. <laughs> And of course, it means that if you're in tune with the guru, you begin to resemble the guru. And you don't necessarily literally look like Krishna, but you do really because your consciousness is the same. So there becomes an uncanny resemblance. You know, you can usually tell who's from Ananda. You can tell who's from SRF. You can sometimes, if you're really tuned in, you can tell who's from other ashrams. You'll see them and you'll realize, oh, those must, those must be Amici disciples. Those are Guru Mai's disciples because they look like them. Yeah. <laughs> There's just some quality that comes through. Yes. Yeah.
Wait, wait, did you have your hand? Oh, Brenda. Well, it's also a sort of a looking like. Haven't you ever noticed how much married couples look alike and they don't look alike at all? There's pictures of David and me. We don't look alike, but, we, but there's pictures of us and I'll be darned, we look alike. How can we look alike? But we do. Well, Go ahead. Yeah, but when Jesus died and came back in three days and he met his disciples on the road to Emmanuel. Wherever they were on their way to. Uh-huh. <laughs> and his disciples didn't recognize him. That's because he clouded their minds. Uh, but, No, 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 no. They recognized him when he lifted the veil from their minds. Sri Yukteswar met Babaji at the Kumbha Mela and didn't know who he was until Babaji let him know that it was him. Even though looking right at him, he looked just like Lahiri Mahashaya. I mean, everything, Sri Yukteswar should have known it was, it's right in this chapter. Sri Yukteswar should have known it was Babaji. Everything about it indicated that it was Babaji, but Babaji wanted him to be relaxed and natural, so he didn't tell him until such time as he lifted the veil from his mind. That was the same with the disciples of Jesus. Why? Who knows? But he was there and he kept, he kept that thought. Swami said, Master could just keep a thought from arising in your mind. You know, if there was a thought that you had that for some reason he, he didn't want it, for example, when Master was dying, was going to die. And he was hinting in all directions and saying goodbye to everyone. But Swamiji said he just kept the thought from arising in their minds that he was really going to past but in retrospect it was perfectly clear and the only reason they didn't know it is because he kept them from knowing he didn't want them to know till he was gone now maybe that wasn't even your question but oh no Jesus Jesus brought his his own body he brought the body of Jesus back that's why it was all the more remarkable they didn't recognize him but uh Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him. Where have they taken my Lord? And then she recognized him because it's um, Daniel Brinkley, you know, who's the famous dying and return person, talks about when he, let me see if I, I can't, maybe I can't get all the details straight, but he realized when he was dead, looking at his body, that we don't, we think we're recognizing physical features, but we're not. We're recognizing the vibration of consciousness that's coming out. And when he floated around being dead, he recognized that people recognize the vibration first and then they, and then they call it the face. But it's not really the face they're recognizing, it's the vibration. So, and that's partly answers the question about how we recognize each other the next incarnation. Is that, you know, there's just something exceedingly familiar about this person because it's their vibration that's the same. And sometimes Swamiji described it also with the eyes and when he said uh, I'll meet someone that I haven't met in a long time and I can't remember who they are but then he said when I look at their eyes they come into focus was the word that he used in other words when I tune into the consciousness and in that same light he remarked this was a whole cycle of this couple that I knew had gotten uh, divorced and prior to the time they got divorced we were buying some fabric to make some shirts and we were buying fabric to make a shirt for her husband, her then husband. And I said, what color eyes does he have? She said, I don't know. And I thought later, that's why they got divorced. That's what I mentioned at the, at the dinner table. I said, you know, you know what color his eyes were. 
And uh, in fact, he has very sort of complex eyes. And I think that was partly more what she was saying is that they're changeable. But Swami just said, and Seva was sitting next to him, and Seva at that time was just with him all the time, had been practically his first student and was just his constant companion. He said, well, I don't know what color eyes Seva has. And he turned over and he looked and he said, brown, like that. And she has these eyes that are about this big. And especially when she was younger and her hair was dark, I mean, the most prominent feature on her face were these eyes. It was impossible not to know what color her eyes were. And he had to turn and look. He said, I don't look at people's eyes, I look through them. It was a very, just very interesting comment that, you know, he, he's trained himself. This is what I found with Swamiji so much through the years is that if you have, you have a sudden, you, I myself or others, you make up an explanation for what he's doing, but he's just not doing that. He's just doing something completely else and you just don't even know that's what he's doing. And um, that's why I'm very hesitant to ever sort of say, this is the story, because he, he's always blowing my little story. But, but it's, it's a very interesting thought to think about looking at people's consciousness through their eyes rather than looking at their eyes. And that's, and that's how a Master says too, that's how you recognize people from past lives, is through the eyes. That is what Master said. Because the eyes don't change that much. Now I'm getting, I'm remembering that. The eyes don't change that much. Now that didn't mean the physical eye. That meant the vibration through the eyes, and that's the poetic, the poet's statement, the eyes are the window to the soul. Because the soul consciousness is what carries on, and the, the garment it takes is quite incidental. Pam. Uh-huh. And suddenly I was in this room and it was too, I couldn't see the signs fast enough people were just coming up and I did just stare, I just looked right into their eyes and I only made one mistake. Hmm. And we didn't look like we were still Yeah. <laughs> But it is true when you meet somebody who's changed radically, if you look into their eyes for a moment, then somehow it'll click. There'll be a resemblance there that you'll see. Yeah, from high school to now, people, you know, they, they get really wide or they get really thin or they get bald or they get white. They get all kinds of things that just really disguise the way they look, but you just stare at them and there it is. It goes right in. There was another thought I had with that. What was it? Well, I forgot it. Any other comments? Yes, Cyrus. At various times, um, various of the masters make predictions, you know, mobilize them, this will happen or that will happen. And I, I wonder if, um, and you know, sometimes like, I think it's a story in the past about the raw foods restaurant where yoga said, you know, someone well, will die. It was a, a clinic where they, they fasted on what made them fast on water, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. um, so the, the risk that people might think that they're actually putting a curse and whether in fact whether profit would put a curse on it, you? Instead of simply predicting the future, but actually creating that as a lesson. And I'm wondering if, like the cauliflower robbery, didn't... Well, but in a sense, I mean, Yogananda making that statement that somebody's going to die there and those people will be found out, he was also being the instrument of God that was willing the appropriate karma on them. Now, that's not a curse. I mean, it's not a curse because a master wouldn't curse. A, 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 a person of power could curse and make something happen. Milarepa, Tibet's greatest yogi, cursed. He developed great power specifically to be able to curse before he became a good man. But he, first he was a very bad man, but an exceedingly powerful one, and he cursed his mother's enemies at her request. 
because he had enough, he developed enough power to work the divine law, but he worked it for darkness and not for light. But the difference is intention and consciousness, not the statement of the truth. So Yogananda is both predicting and causing his prediction to come true. So both you would say were true. Yeah. And for us too, I mean, we have to be careful what you say. We don't have the power, most of us, to manifest it, but it has an effect. Our very thoughts have an effect. I had a, a big argument with someone once because uh, she had a very, pretty much an unlaudable attitude to another woman. And the other woman came into the room and the other woman was very sensitive. I'll say woman A and woman B. Woman B was very sensitive and woman A put on a very, you know, courteous demeanor but was actually quite nasty in her mind to woman B. And woman B took great offense and was very rude and walked out. And woman A had the audacity to be mad at woman B (laughs) for walking out. I said, well, what? I mean, you were courteous, but you were sending her barbs. You might as well have shouted them. She could hear them. And uh, its thoughts have power. And, and, you know, true ahimsa is not just learning to be gracious with your words. It's to have no impulse toward harmfulness to arise. And, and so we have, to, we have to go step by step by step. First we learn to uh, control our words. But ultimately, we have to control the impulse in our, our consciousness. And that's why when, I, again, just an, another story that some of you have heard about Swamiji that, that is like that was when I thanked him for being so gracious to me all these years and never referring to the fact when I was so young that I was so young. Because I, I realized in dealing with people now who are proportionally as young you know, 20 or 25 years younger than me. I'm 20 years younger than Swamiji, 22 or 23 years younger. And I came when I was in my early 20s. So he was already, I mean, even just in age, he was already well into very, being very knowledgeable about what he was doing, and I wasn't. But that didn't stop me from thinking I was. And so I caused more than a little grief around the scene. I caused quite a lot of grief around the scene just by my exuberant ignorance. And, uh, but he never, ever said anything that was related to the fact that I was so young and so self-evidently didn't know what I was doing, which is the most obvious thing in the world to say, isn't it? Well, you haven't had much experience. The only thing specific I remember is when he was, he, uh, he, I was involved with a program that he was also there and I spoke and he started to suggest ways I could do it better. And he said, oh, no, you'll just be better when you've done it more. And that, that was the only specific reference I've ever heard where he made any reference to my youth and my inexperience. Otherwise, he just treated me straight on, took me just straight as I was and related to it without taking unfair advantage of that, which he could have done so easily. And so recognizing it now, as I work with people who are 25 years old to my 54, and the temptation is enormous because it's a simple way to get them to be quiet, you know, or to get them to listen to you. Not that I really feel the need to, but you, you know, the impulse arises. You want to have your own way and you don't want to be patient and so you just want to try to give them a reason why they have to be quiet and listen to you. It's the uh, last recourse of a weak leader, which tempts me, of course, it tempts everyone. But I remember how Swami never did, so I... I try to do my best. The long introduction for my saying to Swamiji how much I appreciated it. I said, I so appreciate you never made a point of how young I was. 
He looked at me sort of like this. He said, well, I never noticed. You know, I never noticed. He said, I never relate to anybody, not even children, in terms of the age of their body. That's, and so it's sort of like, well, I thought he just had a good attitude. You know, he doesn't have a good attitude. He's trained himself. And that's not like he, something he does. It's something he's trained himself to perceive the world according to a higher truth. And so it's, it's not even in his mind. It's not he's controlling the impulse to say, you silly, youthful ninny. It just doesn't even occur to him that you're a youthful ninny. You just have an idea that has to be related to, and you're a soul with certain needs to development that have to be related to. It's just, that's it. It's eternity. Whether you're two years old or 25 or 50 or 90. And I mean, that's what we're really going for. You, you can see how different that is. But in another way, it's a so much more intelligent way to solve the problem. Because otherwise you're just trying to suppress your impulses. What you do is you root your impulse out from the, from the very core. What is the seed form of this delusion? And let me work on the seed form of that delusion and then I'm not going to have to worry about all the small stuff. It's just every time I look at any incarnated being, just see them respectfully as a child of Divine Mother, just a soul on its way to infinity. You know, and if... It, if it's, it's still in diapers or, you know, is the President of the United States. What difference does it make? Um, I heard a, an anecdote totally unrelated. I saw this film, which was actually really quite good. It was called The Loretta Claiborne Story. And it was a, around about a black, retarded girl who became quite a quite successful athlete in the, in the Special Olympics. And also apparently became quite a celebrity figure. And, you know, she really had to fight hard for what she had. And she had certain friendships with other people that she met in the Special Olympics. One, one boy in particular who was a singer. They didn't make that much of it in the film, but he was a friend of hers. She had to work hard for everything she had because her intelligence wasn't great, so it took a lot of willpower. And she became so well-known as this um, hero of... Uh, people who aren't mentally complete, that I guess it was Bill Clinton invited her to go jogging with him. But as it happened, the day that Bill Clinton wanted her to go jogging with him, this is the true story, this friend of hers, who was also a retarded man, but a singer, was having a performance. And so she said simply, oh, I can't go with the president. And they said, well, you know, he would understand. She said, no, I told my friend I'd be at the concert. She said, I didn't used to have very many friends and I want to take care of them. And she said, well, I'm sure that he would understand. She said, what should I tell him? I got a better offer? <laughs> you know, it's like, who's the retarded person? You stop for a second. But it was just, you know, just cutting through all of the stuff that binds us. And, and that's really what uh, God is asking of us. Very, very insightful comment. Okay, well, Babaji's interest in the West? Hmm? Hmm? We've gone all around it. I don't mind. There's so many... You know, when you, read this, when you read this book and see all the quotation marks, you often realize how many sections are he's quoting from what Lahiri said or what Sri Yukteswar said or what Babaji said. And he also gives you like a feeling for their personalities and a feeling for the lives they lived. Master tells us about these ten years that he spent with Sri Yukteswar at the Sarampur Ashram or um, 
out at the, at the Puri ashram. Of course, uh, some of us have a physical picture in our mind of what these places are. Suffice to say they're very simple. You know, just very simple. And there's a unique simplicity to Indian buildings. They often are concrete um, because of the climate there. You know, the concrete lasts better or stone of some kind. Um, because of the climate, also the monsoons and so on, often the paint is peeling and it's... And there's a starkness to the Indian... Uh, to every, everywhere in India except for the opulent Western environments. But if you go into the, the average Indian home, what to speak of the ashram, there's a whole thought form that, that, that minimizes what, it, what, what is there instead of maximizing it. You know, the West, we fill things up. Somehow that, the habit of the East, especially India, is to just not have much there. There'll be the chair and the table and the mat, but there just won't be a lot of frou-frou all in between it. So, yes? Uh-huh. In the kitchen, four walls and a pit at one corner. That was it. That was the kitchen. Yeah. And then there's a cabinet you open and there's a few pots inside. There was nothing else. There was nothing else. So now, that was a slightly exceptional case because he had five dowries to pay. So there was nothing in his house. But it wasn't... <laughs> it, 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 this was a friend of ours. He had five daughters. This man had five daughters and he had to pay five dowries. So they really acquired nothing because everything they acquired they had to sell. But, but it's true also that the house was like that. Because even Sanjay's house, who was, who was our Indian guide and was comfortably well off, was so barren by American standards. There's just no other word to use for it. So, so the picture of Master here with three Keshwar, you know, squatting on the floor, sitting on the mat with the lamps lit, and I'm sure you could, you know, hear the crickets. Just utter simplicity, complete quiet. They're rural areas anyway, but then they were even much more so. And just day after day, just being there with his master. There's no phones, there's no fax machines, there's no email. And, you know, it's just, you no, know, really, it's just nothing. But that very, very simple consciousness. And then into that, you know, the large stars of the tropics gleamed over our heads as I sat by Sri Yukteswar in the second-story balcony. And, and just there, and maybe there's a few other disciples around, but, but day after day, for many years of Yogananda's life, he was just with Sri Yukteswar, and Sri Yukteswar was transforming his consciousness and transferring to him by conversation and by vibration you know, the, the, the wisdom of the ages that he needed to acquire. Now, I don't know how much, you can't say avatar to avatar what they're really doing, but nonetheless, this is the leela that they played out. So in this setting, you know, Yogananda says, tell me again, Master, the story of your meeting Babaji. And then, of course, Sri Yukeshwar, in the leela of being a human being, Babaji is, you know, this great spiritual figure, and the humility of a master is one of the ways you can tell the greatness of someone is their ability to admire others. You know, if they, if they have the capacity to admire great ones, that says a lot about their own greatness. Uh, sometimes the lesser teachers think that it shows their greatness to bow to no one. But think of Trilonga Swami touching the feet of Lahiri Mahashaya. It says as much about Trilonga Swami as it says about Lahiri. 
that he, he bowed to greatness when he saw it. And so uh, Babaji just, uh, Sri Keshwar tells this glorious story about meeting Babaji. He also says, I met Babaji three times in my life. Now, I don't know, you always have to be a little suspicious because they could commune through infinity, even as um, he says at the end of the story when he carries the message to, Bob, to Lahiri that his life is going to end that the masters don't really need people to carry messages, but they have them do it because then the story gets around. Like when Ram Gopal watched Mataji and Babaji and Lahiri all converse so that he could be a witness, so he could tell the story. But then you just have uh, Sri Yukteswar, and, and uh, you know, Master was like in his late teens when he became a disciple of Sri Yukteswar, so he's a young, a young man, a vibrant man, absorbing all of these stories for the sake of the book he's going to write, for the sake of what he's going to carry to the West. And again, this, uh, in this story, it's talking about how Babaji said that I'm going to send a disciple who's going to go to the West to take these teachings and Sri Yukteswar turns to Yogananda and you're that disciple. I mean, these are actually very moving stories and they're presented to us just even so that we can feel the um, the personal care that God is lavishing on us. Because when, when Babaji says, I feel many potential saints in the West, in America, and in Europe waiting to be awakened. I mean, that's us. And as I was saying on Sunday, they have to get this process in motion. So Babaji calls Lahiri, Lahiri initiates Sri Yukteswar, Babaji tells Sri Yukteswar. And again, you see that Babaji is the key figure here. Babaji calls Lahiri, Babaji tells Sri Yukteswar, Babaji says he's sending Yogananda, that the whole story is run by Babaji. There's a, an amusing story, you know, that Swami tells in the path when Yogananda told one of his disciples to do something that the disciple found difficult and didn't want to do. And he went into his room and he was praying to Babaji for guidance and Yogananda opened the door and said no fair going over my head and then he shut the door <laughs> I mean that there's just a real power there and from time to time from time to time Swamiji will say I prayed to Babaji about it and it's an interesting thing to just sort of realize that that Babaji has a special role and from time to time praying to Babaji may be just what's appropriate um, when, uh, when Swamiji dedicated our community, as I often tell you, Swamiji spent most of his talk talking about how we founded our community because that's what Babaji wanted us to do. And you know, he just sort of skipped up to Babaji because Babaji, has, ha, with Jesus, has made the plan for the salvation of the West and for the salvation of this age. And, and this is all the story on a very practical level. In a peculiar sort of way, you have to realize these masters are very practical. Even just this little bit here, Sri Yukteswar, or whatever he was called at that time, I want you, Swamiji, he called him, I want you to write a book. It's like Babaji wants, Lahir, wants Sri Yukteswar to write a book. He wants this little book to come into existence, which nobody is reading yet. You know, the holy science, very few people read it. But Babaji asked Sri Yukteswar to write that book. You, you know, it, it ends up just being this little published book that you walk around and sort of carry, but this is a specific request from a God-realized master that this be done. Why? 
to show specifically how Jesus and Krishna, how the Bible and the Gita go together. And this is all, it doesn't look like anything now, but really, nor did the mission of Christ look like very much at the time. You know, who would have thunk, who was hanging around really closely, that it was ever going to turn into what it turned into? Or Krishna's life, for that matter. You know, it was there, but it, it didn't have, at the time, because the world, by very definition, these avatars are sent for a time beyond the moment. As I was remarking in here before, you know, if, you're, if we were too in tune with this age, we wouldn't be working, we wouldn't be uplifting this age. I mean, Michael Jackson is a worldwide, was a worldwide phenomenon because he's very much in tune with his age. So is Michael Jordan, you know, they're very much in tune with his age. They capture everybody's imagination and they may be uplifting it a little tiny bit, but they're not leading it in a, toward a whole new consciousness. So Babaji, bearing in mind that he's keeping his body for this whole cycle of creation, he's kind of got a long rhythm view of it, right? And he recognizes how very slowly things evolve. I mean, look at us. Look how slow we are to just get even the smallest point. I was reflecting this afternoon that I, I can pleasantly say that certain of my faults have now been replaced by new ones, you know, that I'm not just working with the same old stuff. And it just seems like, oh, I've been at this a long time. But, but things do change and then they're permanent. It's the thing about our path. When you change, you, you usually never go back. But still, it's just so slow. And watch our culture change so slowly. I, I've joked about the fact that you can now buy whole wheat cornflakes and whole wheat, whole grain cereal just in a regular market. You whole grain, whole wheat cornflakes, whole grain cornflakes. But, but I remember when, when the, even the thought of that was just so radical. And, you know, even in our little lifetime we've seen and you know, now people are concerned about pesticides and used to be just a nutcase if you were concerned about it. But it's just all, it moves slowly by slowly by slowly. But we, have, we haven't gotten anywhere near self-realization and a real understanding of gurus or anything yet. But it's all, the, the seeds are being planted for that. And uh, the other thing I just loved about this chapter was the, just the description of the Kumbha Mela. Where, you know, this this picture of what's been going on in India all these years. It's such a different culture where you have all these saints and sadhus and, you know, many of them, as they freely admit here, are not uh, particularly of high consciousness, but they're, they're trying to do something. And often they just live completely apart from civilization. But every six and every 12 years, they just come down and mingle. They just make themselves available and... I mean, nowadays it's, you know, millions of people come for it, but they just kind of hang out in this camp for a few months or a few weeks and just see each other, give darshan. And it's just been, it's been going on for thousands of years like that in India because it's just sort of what the culture works about. And this is where um, Sri Teshwar says, you know, a lot of the people in the West are more intelligent than the people here, but the people in the West don't understand the value of these kumbha melas. In fact, probably our word meili is probably from meila there. They don't understand what would be the benefit of going and wandering around among a bunch of half-dressed people, you know, just in order to tune in to the few that are really God-realized. Isn't it odd? It's such a different world. But then Babaji also defends the West and says that the West, India has a lot to learn from the West as well. 
And you, you have this whole extraordinary picture of this partnership that Yogananda often talked about, which, which Babaji is describing in this conversation with Sri Teshwar here. Fascinating, eh? I want to take a short break. Okay, it's a little early for a break, but let's take it. We'll take about 10 minutes. I also was very touched in this story by the simple fact, the, um, the very sweet way that Babaji relates to Sri Yukteswar. You know, he calls him child. Um, and, and the, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of reverence that uh, Sri Yukteswar shows back. And then when, when, he, uh, when Babaji just puts this request upon Sri Yukteswar, I expect you to write this book. And Sri Yukteswar, like, like anybody, says, well, I don't know if I can really do that. And then Babaji just reminds him, if I ask you to do it, you can do it. And you, you sort of read it here, and it just seems so obvious. And yet, in our own lives, we have all these thoughts, you know, about why things are difficult to do, whether it's writing is, but But this simple belief that if God wants you to do it, it can be done. Um, we've talked in here, or maybe it was on a Wednesday night class, about something very interesting Swamiji said when we, were, we came out of the Uffizi Museum in Florence. We went in to look at, um, you sort of started, there's a certain period of the art in there which is just really so beautiful. He went to see the Botticelli, a springtime uh, Venus, yes, Venus on a half shell, as everyone always calls it. But, uh, springtime one because it had all been restored and it's just it's just really exquisitely beautiful and uh, we were walking out and Swami made the comment which I've pondered a great deal since he said without faith you can't really create great art and um, I've thought about it in lots of different ways but not the least of which is well great art great art especially as Swamiji describes it is to make manifest in this world something of the superconscious. I was in a, an office building today of this law firm, and it was a, a, a fairly nicely divine, designed office building with big windows and so on, and there were two huge pieces, paintings on the wall. They were like about five or six feet square, and they were so ugly. You know, just like... I mean, I felt, I felt really badly thinking they were so ugly because there's probably some artist somewhere who painted them. And one of them was, it was sort of abstract and it was obviously, I think it was a street scene. I mean, I think it was just a street with a stoplight and some buildings, but it was extremely coarse painting and ugly. There's no word for it. And the other one was sort of orange and it, it looked like, it was just like half faded out was mostly just orange, but you could vaguely see that like as if through some kind of a nuclear cloud or something, there were some trees back there somewhere, or just the, the lines, huge paintings, both of them. And I just thought, what, what can people be thinking? Because clearly someone worked hard and put a lot of energy and some interior designer went and found them and bought them. And I'm just thinking of the designer bringing them in, you know, and showing them and everybody having to say, oh yeah, that's great because she's an expensive designer and she brought them. And it's just craziness though. Because real art is uplifting and brings something from above in. But you have to have faith that there is, there is such a plane of consciousness to reach to. You have to have faith that it's your own, it's within your capabilities to raise your consciousness. You have to have faith that God will give you what it is that you have to do. 
And it's, it's very, um, ever since Swami said that for me, I'm, I'm a person who can be easily creative in some areas and very stuck in others. But I've just used that in the back of my mind, that if this is being asked of me, it's already out there. If the idea is coming to do it, it only comes to me because it already exists. You know, by no means would I even begin to think of myself as even an artist, what to speak of a great one. But nonetheless, the example of the great artist tells us what direction to go. You know, Mozart would just hear it, and he would just write it down. That's what Swamiji says, too. He just hears it. He hears the music, and he writes it down. Occasionally, he, you know, he doesn't think the music, he, but he also wills it to come. And he talked about how he, um, he put together this slideshow, which, was, which became called Different Worlds, and it was a... a pictures that he'd taken all over the world of all these different people in, in different states of consciousness. I don't mean all advanced, but just, you know, people on the subway, children playing, very worldly uh, merchant in some island in Greece, and, and pictures of devotees, just sort of showing the vast panorama of human consciousness. And he wanted to illustrate it with, uh, with music. And so he was walking from where his office was at that point to where the piano was, and he was, as he put it, he was getting extremely clear as to exactly what it was he wanted to create. And what he wanted was a melody that somehow evoked the whole human condition. And he said by the time he got to the piano, it took him as long to write it as it took his fingers to play it. Because he just, as he said, he just knew it was there. And all he had to do was just be, be very focused and then he could be the instrument of it. And it was just exactly the right melody. And he wrote... I don't know whether it exists beyond that or not, but he just wrote this melody that's just perfect. It has the whole spirit in it. He was writing, doing a slideshow for St. Francis, and he needed a, th a theme piece. He had the same thought. He knew just exactly what he wanted in concept, and then he knew it was there, and he just played it. And he played it out and wrote it down. Um, and that's the faith of a power greater than your own, and you're not just sort of flailing around with your own nature. I mean, this is just this little thing that Babaji put into Sri Yukteswar. Well, I've said you're going to be able to do it, so therefore you're going to be able to do it. And, so, and Sri Yukteswar, because he had that power within himself, said, well, of course. If you say I can, then I can. And then all, all uh, it's not up to you anymore. All you have to do is show up, and then you can put, put the force through. It's very, very instructive and very important. And it doesn't have to be art that we're talking about. It's any little thing that we have to do. If it's given to us to do, it's an assignment from Babaji. You, you know, that, that it's not really such a leap to say that. Because here we are, and he has a great interest in us, in our well-being. When, uh, when we were in the middle of the uh, Bertolucci lawsuit, and Swamiji was just being vilified by these awful people every day, and he, every morning we'd have to get up and go down to the courtroom and he'd have to sit there and be insulted for, you know, six or ten hours and then we'd all come home and have dinner and then we'd get up and go do it again. went on for many, many days. And uh, at one point Swami was a little discouraged and he was meditating and he was praying to Babaji. And he said essentially, why are you doing this to me? And the answer that he said he felt Babaji gave him was he felt Babaji just whisper in his heart, he said, they're all my children. Meaning the bad ones, the good ones, the people, you know, you're my child, and then the people who are vilifying you are my child. 
my children, they're all my children. There's no one on this planet who is less dear to me than all the others. Everyone is equally dear. So even those that even, now that's a, that's a quite a strong statement because how could we not be loved by God? What could we do that could ever actually separate us from God's love? Now, however, we have to remember that we're not equally receptive to God's love. And not being receptive to it, we do very many bizarre things. But that doesn't mean that the divine withdraws uh, her protection. It means that we become unconscious of it. And we become confused and dim-witted and do cruel and awful things. And then Babaji has to allow his children to suffer accordingly for it. It's, It's just very interesting. That's why, remember the letter that David read about how to pray that Swamiji wrote? Some of you heard that on or got it on the email. And Swamiji said, I just don't have any extra to pray for the terrorists. He said, because they're not receptive. He said, they're, they're just too closed in their little worlds of hate. He said, I leave it to God to open their hearts. He said, but I don't hate them for it. Why should I hate them for it? They're suffering enough. But it's, it's just a very... Um, it's very important lessons. And we, we need to constantly... Um, personalize it that's why I love this chapter so much I just love the thought of Babaji and the Himalayas thinking about our welfare and inspiring the the Catholic diocese to sell us this church because it's such a great church for us you know I mean he blinded those poor people and caused the assessor to think it was worth much less than it was and made the realtor just not interested in looking for other clients and I mean just uh, so many things happened that, that just didn't make any sense at all. It was the divine hand because it was meant to be for us. And, you know, just step by step. I, and that, that doesn't make us proud because he does the same for everyone because they're all my children. You know, every good uplifting thing and every time we reject God's love, he weeps for us. In Master's poem, When I Am Only a Dream, he talks about how when we turn away from the divine, that um, he will weep for us through his eyes and perchance through our eyes as well. Which is such a, uh, an evo- uh, it evokes such a, a feeling of the fact that when we turn away, it's we who cry, it's we who suffer, and God suffers with us, the Master suffers with us. But we have to really, on a very deep level, just as Babaji gave an assignment to Sri Yukteswar to write that book, we have to realize that we're all out here on an assignment from Babaji. And whatever little world you're in, no matter how distant it may seem from the revolution of self-realization, it is not. Because in, in, the, in the revolution of your consciousness and the rippling out of your consciousness, you're serving this extraordinary cause. Lahiri didn't even let his disciples talk about it. And yet... Um, by their just simple living according to these principles they began a revolution we at least can talk about it in fact in Yogananda's earlier lessons he used to exhort the students of the lessons to you know carry copies of autobiography of a yogi and give away to your friends and your acquaintances and your co-workers as many as you can I mean he was really telling you out there to spread the word he was very dynamic about it and uh, certainly that's an option you know, but but it's much more inward than that. 
Well, any comments or questions? Or? Stephanie. I was just thinking, um, when you were talking about Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if it might make us think or try to have the attitude when having to fight evil in that form for uh, you know, terrorists or whatever to somehow focus on fighting the evil. Oh yes, the people. The evil doors, even though in, in a sense you have to fight the evil doers, but the focus being to fight the evil. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I loved what Swamiji said. We can't really spare a lot of energy trying to bring them to the light because they're just too far gone for our feeble powers of change. We just have to leave them in, in God's hands and by their, by their own suffering they'll learn. We even in this um, little battle that we're in, you know, with SRF and everything that's going on, I, I just, it's not happening in my mind here. It's, it, I mean, it, to me it's over there. It's just like... I mean, I'm sure that's how a warrior is on the field of battle. I mean, I can almost remember it because I'm certain I've been that kind of warrior before. You know, you're standing here and that's where you're going and there's all this in between. You know, soldiers and tanks and landmines and all those things, but I'm sure the soldiers and, the, and the, the officers who have the power, they don't see all this, they just see that. And they just put their will through it and push through and get there. Because if you deal with all of this, you'll just get sucked into it. You have to, but you have to go where you're going. It's the power of thought, and it's the power of magnetism, and so on. And so, in any conflict, whether it be our present, you know, national effort to eradicate this very evil force, you know, we're dealing with the evil force with great precision and care, I hope. But what we're looking at is the world beyond it. We're looking at a world in which this is eradicated. And that's the great difference between, and I, I was begin, I'm beginning to hear all the cynicism come back, which is making me sick. You know, just people saying, oh, well, you know, we're just like them. We kill people and we break buildings. And yes, but we don't do it for the pleasure of doing it. You know, we do it because we're looking for a world in which it won't be necessary. You see, it's such a different consciousness that it's just fatuous to say otherwise. But it also is very important because otherwise we sink down to the level of hatred and um, despair. Uh, but if we keep your eyes on the goal, where, the, where ultimately the light will be, then you do what you need to do, but only because, for the sake of the light, not for the sake of what you're doing. And I don't mean the means justify the ends, I just mean you focus on the uplifting dimension of it. So you know, we, we have to be in the struggle for Master's work right now, and the opponent to our effort has a face and a name but we're not really fighting them we're fighting a narrow-minded consciousness that we just have to put forth certain kinds of energy until it's eradicated and they are God's children you know it's, it's just so wonderful to think and it's true if people, somebody changes their behavior they're, they're fine you know the most terrible sinner becomes a saint all they have to do is behave differently it's a, it's a really really important thing to realize it's a very important thing to realize in your own heart. Many times in my life when I've been in a position where I've just done such a ghastly thing or another, either, you know, short term or some like long hole that I've dug for myself and then I finally realize I'm in it, I just say, look, you walked into this spot, you can just turn around and walk out. 
And it's just such a simple thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of us ever. We just occasionally do the wrong thing. And so if we just got ourselves to here and we realize we don't want to be here, we just turn around and go back. I mean, it's, it's a very important image to keep in mind. And we have the faith that no matter what, we're all Babaji's children. Just straight up like that. When you read this chapter again and you think, gee, he had Teshwar write the book. I mean, he just really cares what goes on with us. And count yourself as one of those potential saints. Me, you know. Sister Gyanamata used to say that. She said she used to meditate on the fact that Master, she said, Master came all the way from India just for me. She said, and I know he came for others too, but I like to contemplate the fact that he came for me. And that's not ego. You know, that's, that's a wonderful appreciation. Swamiji, when he was in India he, and he, would, he was visiting Ananda Ma, the joy permeated mother described in here, and he had this very sweet rapport with her. As Swamiji described it, when he was with Master, he was so young as a devotee, and his, he put it so in awe of Master, and it was also the last years of Master's life in which he was, he, he was very awesome. You know, he was more, much more withdrawn than he, much more impersonal and much more withdrawn than he was in earlier years. Oh, Swami had no point of comparison, but so he was told. He said that he, he, could, he never could overcome his sense of awe of Master. I said, well, does that mean that you were um, nervous in his company? Oh, Swami said, oh, not at all. He said, but he was in just a, such a state of awe that he could never... Um, uh, get beyond that to, to relate more naturally. He said, so when he went to India, which was, you know, 10, 12 years later, and he met Ananda Ma, he said he was able to have with Ma the kind of relationship he wasn't mature enough to have with Master, in which he was very um, at ease and very able to just sort of be in her company without being overwhelmed all the time by who she was. She wasn't an avatar, but she was a very, very great saint. And uh, uh, anyway, she was very um, extremely generous to Swamiji with her time and lavished her attention on him and said to him, he, he says, I don't treat anyone like this, just ask the people around me. You know, that I'm, the way I'm treating you, I don't treat anyone like this. And she said, all these people come and uh, she said, how did she put it? Anyway, yeah, no one else has drawn from me. I was trying to think of the exact image, but it was, she said essentially, you're like the bee that comes right to the flower and just drinks the nectar. As she said, and the others are just sort of hanging around the edge, but you're coming right there. Now, the point of that was... What was the point of that? I know the point of that. Give me just a moment. Um, oh, yes. Very important point. At one point, uh, Swamiji said something to her about that he felt selfish taking so much of her time because there were sometimes hundreds or thousands of people around her. I feel selfish taking so much of your time. And Ma answered, she said, how can it be self, how can that, how can something be selfish, the result of which is to dissolve the ego? It's a very interesting way to put it. There's no selfishness if you desire something that is to take away your ego. And so that was where when uh, Sister Gyanamata was saying, 
oh, he came for me. There's nothing in that that reinforces the ego. What that does is that dissolves the ego because that's the um, forming that close bond with the divine consciousness is the end of all egotism. It's the desire which ends all other desires. It's a very sweet thought, isn't it? I um, At different times over the years, you tune into different ones of the masters, just different things happen. And I used to, in my, in my little trailer where I lived for many years at the beginning, I had a bed like this on, next to the window, and then I had pictures of the masters up at the top. And one night, I have no idea why, Babaji fell on my head. <laughs> Just woke me up, fell on my head like that from up there. And so I thought, well, I guess there's something here. <laughs> I put him down a little closer and just related to him a little more. It's a good practice on this path from time to time as you feel inspired to really just um, try to really understand what different ones of the gurus have to give us. And it's a long rhythm. It's not anything you have to force. But there's just different times when different, different ones of them seem more real to you. So, well, then you have this wonderful story of Sri Yukteswar. Well, you have the two, two subsequent stories of Sri Yukteswar having Babaji appear and him running away to get the sweetmeats and then Babaji's gone and then Sri Yukteswar's mad at him and then he hides behind the sunbeam and then Sri Yukteswar is rude. It's all just so uh, dear and, and real and natural and all the, this sort of joyful play with one another. And even the little, just the little touch of immediately Babaji explains, well, it was your fault that I had to leave because you were so restless. And, and Sri Yukteswar immediately, yes, of course, that was true, wasn't it? You just like a complete example of what he's trying to train everyone else to be, which is, what do I care whether it's flattering or not? If it's true, it's true. I was talking to Swami about something and he, he made a comment. It wasn't about me, but it was about someone else or I brought up something that someone had said and I said, I'm so tired of comments like that. He said, it doesn't matter whether you're tired of them or not. The question is, is it true? <laughs> and it was just like, why are you having an emotional reaction? It's a question of fact or not fact. It's just such, it's so simple when you're not reacting, isn't it? And it's so completely impossible when you are. But Sri Yukteswar sets us a great example. Well, I treated you like that because you deserved it. Oh, well then, that's fine. And you know, in our lives, when things happen to us and we think we're being so abused by the universe, we just have to say, well, Babaji did it to us because that's what we deserved. Oh, all right. Just as simple as that. All right. Then the story ends, of course, with the marvelous examples of Lahiri Mahashaya giving up the ghost and appearing three, in three places at the same time in the morning after he died. I mean, the book is so rich with these extraordinary stories. You just... Um, it alters your sense of reality in a marvelous way, doesn't it? You know, just whenever we feel small and alone and neglected, you just go back and pick up this book again and think, what have I to worry about? With masters like these, everything is taken care of. All right. That's the end of my story for tonight. That'll do it. Thank you. One more class.